Chapter 2 of The Rough Road by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 2 Thenceforward, Doggy, like the late Mr. Matthew Arnold's fellow millions, lived alone. He did not complain. There was little to complain about. He owned a pleasant old house set in fifteen acres of grounds. He had an income of three thousand pounds a year. Old Peddle, the butler, and his wife, the housekeeper, saved him from domestic cares. Rising late and retiring early, like the good king of Yvetot, he cheated the hours that might have proved weary. His meals, his toilet, his music, his wallpapers, his drawing and embroidering, specimens of the last he exhibited with great success at various shows held by arts and crafts guilds, and such like high and artistic fellowships, his sweet peas, his chrysanthemums, his postage stamps, his dilettante reading, and his mild social engagements, filled most satisfyingly the hours not claimed by slumber. Now and then appointments with his tailor summoned him to London. He stayed at the same mildewed old family hotel in the neighbourhood of Bond Street, at which his mother and his grandfather, the bishop, had stayed for uncountable years. There he would lunch and dine stodgily in musty state. In the evenings he would go to the plays discussed in the less giddy of Durdlebury ecclesiastical circles. The play over, it never occurred to him to do otherwise than drive decorously back to Sturrock's hotel. Suppers at the Carlton or the Savoy were outside his sphere of thought or opportunity. His only acquaintance in London were vague, elderly, female friends of his mother, who invited him to Chile's semi-suburban teas and entertained him with tepid reminiscence and criticism of their divers' places of worship. The days in London thus passed drearily, and Doggy was always glad to get home again. In Durdlebury he began to feel himself appreciated. The sleepy society of the place accepted him as a young man of unquestionable birth and irreproachable morals. He could play the harp, the piano, the viola, the flute, and the clarinet, and sing a very true mild tenor. As secretary of the Durdlebury Musical Association, he filled an important position in the town. Dr. Flint, Joshua Flint, was a doc, organist of the cathedral, scattered broadcast golden opinions of Doggy. There was once a concert of old English music, which the dramatic critics of the great newspapers attended, and one of them mentioned Doggy, Mr. Marmaduke Trevor, who played the viol de gamba as to the manor born. Doggy cut out the notice, framed it, and stuck it up in his peacock and ivory sitting-room. Besides music, Doggy had other social accomplishments. He could dance. He could escort young ladies home of nights. Not a dragon in Durdlebury would not have trusted Doggy with untold daughters. With women, old and young, he had no shynesses. He had been bred among them, understood their purely feminine interests, and instinctively took their point of view. On his visits to London he could be entrusted with commissions, he could choose the exact shade of silk for a drawing-room sofa-cushion, and had an unerring taste in the selection of wedding presents. Young men, other than budding ecclesiastical dignitaries, were rare in Durdlebury, and Doggy had little to fear from the competition of coarser masculine natures. In a word, Doggy was popular. Although of no mean or revengeful nature, he was human enough to feel a little malicious satisfaction when it was proved to Durdlebury that Oliver had gone to the devil. His aunt Sarah, Mrs. Manningtree, 
had died midway in the Phineas MacPhail period. Mr. Manningtree, a year or so later, had accepted a living in the north of England, and died when Doggy was about four-and-twenty. Meanwhile, Oliver, who had been withdrawn young from rugby, where he had been a thorn in the side of the authorities, and had been pinned like a cockchafer to a desk in a family counting-house in Lothbury, E.C., had broken loose, quarrelled with his father, gone off with paternal malediction and a maternal heritage of a thousand pounds, to California, and was lost to the family ken. When a man does not write to his family, what explanation can there be save that he is ashamed to do so? Oliver was ashamed of himself. He had taken to desperate courses. He was an outlaw. He had gone to the devil. His name was rarely mentioned in Durdlebury, to Marmaduke Trevor's very great and cat-like satisfaction. Only to the deem's ripe and kindly wisdom was his name not utterly anathema. "'My dear,' said he once to his wife, who was deploring her nephew's character and face, "'I have hopes of Oliver even yet. A man must have something of the devil in him if he wants to drive the devil out.' Mrs. Conover was shocked. "'My dear Edward!' she cried. "'My dear Sophia,' said he, with a twinkle in his mild blue eyes, that had puzzled her from the day when he first put a decorous arm round her waist. "'My dear Sophia, if you knew what a ding-dong scrap of fiends went on inside me before I could bring myself to vow to be a virtuous milk-and-water parson, your hair, which is as long and beautiful as ever, would stand up straight on end.' Mrs. Conover sighed. "'I give you up.' "'It's too late,' said the dean. The Manningtrees, father and mother and son, were gone. Doggy bore the triple loss with equanimity. Then Peggy Conover, hitherto under the eclipse of boarding-schools, finishing-schools, and foreign travel, swam, at the age of twenty, within his orbit. When first they met, after a year's absence, she very gracefully withered the symptoms of the cousinly kiss to which they had been accustomed all their lives, by stretching out a long, frank, and defensive arm. Perhaps if she had allowed the salute, there would have been an end of the matter. But there came the phenomenon which, unless she was a minx of craft and subtlety, she did not anticipate. For the first time in his life he was possessed of a crazy desire to kiss her. Doggy fell in love. It was not a wild, consuming passion. He slept well, he ate well, and he played the flute without a sign causing him to blow discordantly into the holes of the instrument. Peggy, vowing that she would not marry a parson, he had no rivals. He knew not even the pinpricks of jealousy. Peggy liked him. At first she delighted in him as in a new and animated toy. She could pull strings, and the figure worked amazingly and amusingly. He proved himself to be a useful toy, too. He was at her beck all day long. He ran on errands, he fetched and carried. Peggy realised blissfully that she owned him. He haunted the deanery. One evening after dinner the dean said, "'I'm going to play the heavy father. How are things between you and Peggy?' Marmaduke, taken unawares, reddened violently. He murmured that he didn't know. "'You ought to,' said the dean. When a young man converts himself into a girl's shadow, even although he is her cousin and has been brought up with her from childhood, people begin to gossip. They gossip even within the august precincts of a stately cathedral. "'I'm very sorry,' said Marmaduke. I've, "'I've had the very best intentions.' 
the dean smiled. Uh, what were they? Uh, to make her like me a little, replied Marmaduke. Then, feeling that the dean was kindly disposed, he blurted out awkwardly, I hope that one day I might ask her to marry me. That's what I wanted to know, said the dean. You haven't done it yet? No, said Marmaduke. Why don't you? It, it seems taking such a liberty, replied Marmaduke. The dean laughed. Well, I'm not going to do it for you. My chief desire is to regularise the present situation. I can't have you two running about together all day and every day. If you like to ask Peggy, you have my permission and her mother's. Thank you, Uncle Edward, said Marmaduke. Let us join the ladies, said the dean. In the drawing-room the dean exchanged glances with his wife. She saw that he had done as he had been bidden. Marmaduke was not an ideal husband for a brisk, pleasure-loving, modern young woman. But where was another husband to come from? Peggy had banned the church. Marmaduke was wealthy, sound in health, and free from vice. It was obvious to maternal eyes that he was in love with Peggy. According to the dean, if he wasn't, he oughtn't to be forever at her heels. The young woman herself seemed to take considerable pleasure in his company. If she cared nothing for him, she was acting in a reprehensible manner. So the dean had been deputed to sound Marmaduke. Half an hour later the young people were left alone. First the dean went to his study. Then Mrs. Conover departed to write letters. Marmaduke, advancing across the room from the door which he had opened, met Peggy's mocking eyes as she stood on the hearthrug with her hands behind her back. Doggy felt very uncomfortable. Never had he said a word to her in betrayal of his feelings. He had a vague idea that propriety required a young man to get through some wooing before asking a girl to marry him. To ask first and woo afterwards seemed putting the cart before the horse. But how to woo that remarkably cool and collected young person standing there passed his wit. "'Well,' she said, "'the dear old bird seemed very fussy tonight. What's the matter?' As he said nothing, but stood confused with his hands in his pockets, she went on, "'You too seem rather ruffled. Look at your hair!' Doggy, turning to a mirror, perceived that an agitated hand had disturbed the symmetry of his sleek black hair, brushed without a parting away from the forehead over his head. Hastily he smoothed down the cockatoo-like crest. "'I've been talking to your father, Peggy.' "'Have you really?' she said with a laugh. Marmaduke summoned his courage. "'He told me I might ask you to marry me,' he said. "'Do you want to?' "'Of course I do,' he declared. "'Then why not do it?' But before he could answer, she clapped her hands on his shoulders and shook him and laughed out loud. "'Oh, you dear silly old thing! What a way to propose to a girl!' "'I've never done such a thing before,' said Doggy, as soon as he was released." She resumed her attitude on the hearthrug. "'I'm in no great hurry to be married. Are you?' He said, "'I don't know. I've, I've never thought of it. Just whenever you like.' "'All right,' she returned calmly. "'Let it be a year hence. Meanwhile we can be engaged. It'll please the dear old birds. I know all the tabbies in the town have been mewing about us. Now they can mew about somebody else.' "'That's awfully good of you, Peggy,' said Marmaduke. "'I'll go up to town tomorrow and get you the jolliest ring you ever saw.' She sketched him a curtsy. "'That's one thing, at any rate. I can trust you in your taste in jewellery.' 
He moved nearer to her. I suppose you know, Peggy dear, I've been awfully fond of you for quite a long time. The feeling is more or less reciprocated, she replied lightly. Then, you can kiss me if you like. I assure you it's quite usual. He kissed her, somewhat shyly, on the lips. She whispered, I do think I care for you, old thing. Marmaduke replied sententiously, You have made me a very happy man. Then they sat down side by side on the sofa, and for all Peggy's mocking audacity, they could find nothing in particular to say to each other. Let us play patience, she said at last. And when Mrs. Conover appeared a while later, she found them poring over the cards in a state of unruffled calm. Peggy looked up, smiled, and nodded. we fixed it up, Mummy, but we're not going to be married for a year. Doggy went home that evening in a tepid glow. It contented him. He thought himself the luckiest of mortals. A young man with more passion or imagination might have deplored the lack of romance in the betrothal. He might have desired on the part of the maiden either more shyness, delicacy and elusiveness, or more resonant emotion. The finer tendrils of his being might have shivered, ready to shrivel, as at a touch of frost, in the cool, ironical atmosphere which the girl had created around her. But Doggy was not such a young man. Such passions as heredity had endowed him with had been drugged by training. No tales of immortal love had ever fired his blood. Once, somewhere abroad, the unprincipled MacPhail found him reading Manon Lescaut. He bought a cheap copy haphazard and, taking the delectable volume out of his hands, asked him what he thought of it. "'It's like reading about a lunatic,' replied the bewildered doggy. "'Do such people as Degru exist?' "'Aye, laddie,' replied MacPhail, greatly relieved. "'Your acumen has pierced to the root of the matter. They do exist, but nowadays we put them into asylums. We must excuse the author for living in the psychological obscurity of the eighteenth century. It's just a silly, rotten book.' "'I'm glad you're of the same opinion as myself,' said Doggy, and thought no more of the absurd but deathless pair of lovers. The unprincipled MacPhail, not without porky humour, immediately gave him Paul et Virginie, which Doggy, after reading it, thought the truest and most beautiful story in the world. Even in later years, when his intelligence had ripened and his fear of reading expanded, he looked upon the passion of a Romeo or an Apollo as a conventional peg on which the poet hung his imagery, but having no more relation to real life as is lived by human beings than the bloodlust of the half-man, half-bull minotaur, or the uncomfortable riding conversation of the Valkyrie. So Doggy Trevor went home, perfectly contented with himself, with Peggy Conover, with his uncle and aunt, of whom hitherto he had been just a little bit afraid, with fortune, with fate, with his house, with his peacock and ivory room, with a great clump of typescript and a mass of coloured proof-prints which represented a third of his projected history of wallpapers, with his feather-bed, with Goliath, his almost microscopic Belgian griffon, with a set of Nile-green silk underwear that had just come from his outfitters in London, with his new Rolls-Royce car and his new chauffeur, Briggins. Parenthetically, it may be remarked that a seven-hour excursion in this vehicle youth in the back seat and brigands at the helm, all ordained by Peggy, had been the final cause of the evening's explanations. With the starry heavens above, with the well-ordered earth beneath him, and with all human beings on the earth, 
including Germans, Turks, infidels, and heretics, all save one. And that, as he learned from a letter delivered by the last post, was a callous, heartless London manicurist, who, giving no reasons, regretted that she would be unable to pay her usual weekly visit to Durdlebury on the morrow. Of all days in the year, just when it was essential that he should look his best. "'What the deuce am I going to do?' he cried, pitching the letter into the waste-paper basket. He sat down to the piano in the peacock and ivory room, and tried to play the nasty crumpled rose-leaf of a manicurist out of his mind. Suddenly he remembered, with a kind of shock, that he had pledged himself to go up to London the next day to buy an engagement ring. So, after all, the manicurist's affection did not matter. All was again well with the world. Then he went to bed and slept the sleep of a just and perfect man, living the just and perfect life in a just and perfect universe. And the date of this happening was the 15th day of July, in the year of grace 1914. End of chapter 2